for me, one of the most happy moments, which coincidentally also is probably the most simple moment, is that particular moment, whether I'm sitting or walking or standing or in everyday life, when I remember, oh gosh, duh, all I have to do is be right here, right now. Just as simple as that. And I often wonder whether we as a species, as human beings, have a particular in, um, uh, affinity, a collusion, an investment in the complex that, that our, our collusion with complexity removes us from the simple, simple truth of things. And that maybe it takes a really simple mind to understand the simple truth. And that we can be so complicated. And so, for me, the uh, reminder that just my willingness, my intention, we spoke yesterday about intention, just to begin again and again I sense for me is the heartbeat of the journey, the heartbeat of meditation practice. And what Michelle and I would like to do is kind of bridge the, the uh, inquiry, our time together yesterday afternoon, to a further landscape today. And so uh, um, that's kind of the broadest vision of what it is that this time may or may not be together. And for me, as I look over the years of my life, the time when that was perhaps the most riveting and important recollection happened a couple of years ago when I uh, fell really ill, as many of you know. And instead of actually doing my first retreat here at Vainuheia, I was whisked by ambulance to an airfield in Waimea and flown over to Honolulu and um, admitted to a hospital there. And I was, I was extremely ill. And uh, I was sicker than the doctors and the nurses, I think, around me realized. And one of the great blessings of that time, it was March of uh, 2002, was that very coincidentally, my life and Michelle's life don't often intersect geographically. But she just happened to be in Honolulu. <laughs> <laughs> Praise whoever. Uh, and so um, after a hellish night, I was taken to the intensive care unit. And uh, uh, as my doctor said, it was touch and go, and that it might very well not be a go. And um, in the moment as they were scrambling for a response to what to do, I was having difficulty breathing, my vital signs were failing, uh, this wonderful doctor, <laughs> 
With the long brown eyelashes. With the long brown eyelashes. <laughs> Dr. Pico from Tripler Hospital. We'll never forget him. <laughs> we both had a crush. <laughs> Six temperature or not, it was a crush. And it can save his life. <laughs> so he leant over the bed. <laughs> and Michelle was on one side and he was on the other. And he said, Do you know, we don't know what's going on with you, and we have to do this procedure. And this procedure might very well uh, be too much, and you might die. But if we don't do it, then we have no idea what's going on, and you'll probably die also. So um, the decision is yours. And basically, they needed to go into the lungs, and they needed to take some samples and find out what was going on. So he left, and uh, it was clear that you know, after a moment, I didn't really have to think about it, that we would go ahead with this procedure. And because it had to be done so quickly, uh, I couldn't have all the anesthetics and, you know, all the deadening stuff. They just had to get in there. So, M Michelle had been sitting at my bedside, do you remember with the monitor? Like, I'd taken one look at the monitor and there were all these things going, you know, blood pressure and heartbeat. And then I decided I wasn't going to look again. And I, what happened? You mean downstairs before the ice? Yeah. Uh, um, what happened is that Gavin's vital signs were just plummeting and plummeting and plummeting, and nobody was doing anything about it. And it was so horrendous. Um, and they should have just flown him into ICU, but they didn't. So, I, and I just kind of got. He called me, and <laughs> I was supposed to be coming to the Big Island that day, and I had company. And I said, I, I'll just go visit Gavin and I'll be right back. <laughs> and I came down and there was just this insanity going on. And so it was so bad that I turned into a bull. I mean, I just turned into this. I just went out into the hallway. I started screaming. And um, this doctor in a wheelchair came and I begged him. I actually got down on the floor and I begged him to come in and check Gavin. And he wasn't even responsible for that ward. So he came in and he agreed that Gavin needed intensive care. And um, see, at that point, Gavin wasn't watching his numbers. But I was watching his numbers, and it was horrendous. It was just, I thought he was going to die in my arms. So they got him up to ICU, and this door doctor with the long eyelashes came in. <laughs> and uh, that's what happened. He was probably really good for the vital signs. <laughs> Gavin will never want to know what his numbers were. <laughs> so, Michelle was sent out, <clears throat> went to you, yeah, went outside, and the doctor came in with two nurses, and basically they had to put this, this piece of equipment with a little ball on the end, and had to go up my nose and down my throat and into the lungs where they were going to check out and do some samples. And um, I'd asked, I asked one of the nurses when she wasn't busy if she'd hold my hand, which she said she would. And he began this procedure. And 
it was the most painful thing I'd ever experienced. I mean, it was really, really sore. And he went up about an inch and he's, and he's looking in there and he says, hmm, so there's some interesting geography in there. <laughs> so I said, yeah, I had some sinus surgery. He said, oh, that's good. And now I understand what's going on. He pushes and he gets by and he starts going. And so there's this unbelievable pain. And I tell this story because in that moment, it felt like every coming back to the moment over the last 22 years in meditation, you know, in life, of beginning again and again. It felt like every one of those moments, as Michelle said yesterday, we have no idea of the power of beginning again and again. That in the moments in my life when I needed it most, it felt like every one of those returnings was there with me. And I realized beyond a shadow of a doubt that my job was utterly and completely simple. That I was in the best hands my beloved friend was outside. I was in the arms of this doctor with the big eyelashes. <laughs> but he assured Michelle that there was a nurse outside looking at the vital signs. So Michelle didn't have to remember. He said, he said stop watching the vital signs. I know. Signs. I, I was just glued. I was just like glued onto Gavin, and they made me leave. So I was like, you don't. Don't let him die. <laughs> So it was like I was in, I, I was being taken care of and my job was so simple. I just had to be present. And it was like, it was the greatest blessing. I felt like, like, um, you know, I never knew why I began and what it was that stirred me to, to just begin this journey. And I don't think any of us know, of course, and maybe we never know, but it felt like in that moment, the blessing of a mind inclining towards the present moment was such a manifested blessing. And so I just let go of everything and just started sensation by sensation receiving the journey of this contraction through my head. And it was like, it was just moment by moment and what had been the moment before excruciatingly painful became unutterably workable. It was just like presence with this journey held in love as it made its, its, its way through my body. And at some point towards the back here, before it reached the throat, it just felt like there was this just explosion of love inside of me. It was just the most beautiful thing. And I don't think it was in, you know, I mean, I can't describe it, I, it's difficult to put words in it. It doesn't feel like it was, it was anything otherworldly. It felt like it was just this joy, this love, this happiness of like homecoming, that it was this simple, that the most difficult, the most fearful, we spoke about fear yesterday. It felt like, like you know, and you know, Cal spoke about the radio and the thoughts. There were some thoughts, you know, going on in the background. There was fear, but there was a willingness just to be with the, with the fear, and the fear went away, and there were just sensations arising. And then there was just this great groundswell of love that came forward. And it felt like the, the more the journey went, the more I settled into this experience moment by moment, and the greater the love and the feeling of celebration. 
Well, by the time that this thing was going around the lungs, which I could feel, could actually feel it going around the lungs and doing its work over there. And the doctor with the eyelashes was looking through the thing and, you know, he was directing it and stuff. It was like there was nowhere else on the planet that I wanted to be than right there with those people who I really didn't know. And it felt like all of a sudden he burst into this light and love. And in no time, the nurse there and the nurse there, there was such a pervasive feeling of love. And it wasn't like, like I was a hero or that I'd done this great thing. It was just as if a curtain had lifted and that what had always been there revealed itself. That we were together, we were doing this dance. It was like my job was to hold the momentariness of that particular um, situation. And the, the feeling of this quiet, loving gratitude and joy is an experience that, to some extent, is always available. And I offer this story um, only because it was just such a visceral reminder of the great blessing that it is for all of us. But the great blessing it is when all of us um, manifest that willingness and intention to come home to the body just the way it is, just the way it is with a loving, aware acceptance as the instructions have so beautifully indicated, receiving the body just the way it is. Well, I'll let Michelle in the... Well, what did he say to you when you went out and, and he said what had happened about the procedure, remember? Mm -hmm. Something about he said he's done like thousands of these procedures. Right. And he, he said that, you, you know, it, it, it was an unusual experience yes. because... What did he say? I don't remember. Yeah. I have that. No recall. Yeah. <laughs> but basically he said, you know, it was an unusual experience. For and him. For him. Right. And he'd done many of them. This was among the most complicated. And in the ordinary idea of the world, it would have sounded like, oh, you know, this guy is a great hero, something like that. But it wasn't. It was the exact opposite. It was utterly and completely ordinary. It was like my job was just to hold and affirm the moments as they unfolded in that particular experience. And over the next weeks, when I was in the hospital, this great feeling of love and homecoming endured through those, those weeks. So it wasn't a contrivance, it wasn't some sort of uh, um, event that happened that then passed. There was um, a feeling of, of, of just such enduring gratitude. And over those next weeks, I came home to this body, felt like in a way that I'd never done. Michelle brought me this little um, pouch of Burt's Bees products. And there was like, you know, avocado cuticle cream and rosemary shampoo and, you know, apricot and lemon conditioner, you know, <laughs> you know and papaya eye cream. And, you know, there were, there were like a dozen of these little things. And, you know, I had nothing to do. So. <laughs> So I just had a whale of a time, you know, as my energy slowly started coming back, you know, I would go do the cuticles, but it was just like with love, it was like each, each sense, it was like my loving kindness meditation.
and my ward began to smell like an English country garden. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I had to, I had to like shoo the nurses out of my room sometimes. Remember, because it was like they were all just like coming in there to hang out. You know, whether it was the fragrance or whether it was something else, I don't know. But it was potentially the worst time of my life that turned into unquestionably uh, one of the most beautiful experiences of, of um, my days. And so, um, you know, as we, you know, and I think as Michelle mentioned in the last sitting, at the end of the last sitting before we broke yesterday, the, while we speak from our experiences, it's also really important to remember that each of us, we spoke so much yesterday about flowers and flowers blooming and, you know, that we each like these buds opening into our greatest loveliness, that we each flower in our own particular and beautiful way, and that these stories are just a way of pointing, hopefully, to that particular way, to that particular soil within which each of us um, are going to flower into our greatest um, loveliness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Gavin, how, how do you feel like that um, experience at the hospital um, shifted your relationship to your body in daily life? I, I, I feel like certainly one way that it feels significantly different is that there was something about the gratitude and the privilege to be alive that, you know, when I came back to the Big Island on a wheelchair, I thought I was coming back to die, you know, and, um, and it felt like there was a real felt experience sense of how precious it is to be alive and how um, that, that I just wanted to do whatever I could, to the extent that I had a choice, I wanted to live this life, life as widely, as fully and inclusively as possible, including the body, and it, it was... Oh, no. <laughs> Maybe we should close the windows on that side a little. Are you okay, Margaret? There you go. Beautiful. I mean, it felt there was so much fear of this body. I mean, when I was diagnosed with AIDS, you know, almost 17 years ago, and I've been living with it for, I don't know, 24 years or more, it felt like I was terrified of the body. It felt like there was this time bomb crossing my veins, you know. And also, you know, we spoke about the abuse yesterday afternoon, and it felt like I was just, I was just so scared 
of the body and didn't trust it. It was almost like I had a relationship where I was always waiting for the other foot to drop, you know. And it felt like there was something about that experience that, um, that brought to what feels like a significant conclusion, the fear of the body. So now, you know, uh, I'm doing more actually with my body than I've ever done in my 54 years, which is like, it's just a, a miracle and yet it's not a miracle. Because it feels like, you know, we spoke about fear a lot yesterday that, you know, the blessing is not the elimination of fear because I don't think that's possible. The blessing is the befriending of fear so that life is not circumscribed. And it felt like my body was circumscribed mm -hmm. by the fear. So that's how it's affected the everydayness. And just like, you know, when we do the standing meditation, I never realized how much the fear had almost like prevented me from giving myself to the floor. It was almost like there's this, you know, fear is a contraction, you know, it's like, like that. And one of the way, you know, that contraction in the standing I found, which is why, you know, I'm doing it, you, you know, why we do it together. And, I do a lot of standing meditation at home. Is like, you know, in the standing on the floor, I feel bodily the sensations of contraction and surrender. And sometimes there's a surrender and I feel the sacrum release, the pelvis release, you know, the bones in the spine release. And so it feels like, you know, the Buddha spoke so much about the body, you know, mindfulness of the body, in the body in all the postures of the body. And it feels like, for me, it's been such great self-blessing. It's almost like the body has been a significant mentor into whatever the experience of love is that seems to um, it permeates so much of life now. And for that, I'm so grateful. So, you know, we were talking yesterday about dragons and princesses and how we pull back from what we don't like and how, you know, when you were saying about um, our willingness just to trust in the difficult, you know, is such, because within the difficult are the seeds of possibility, the redemption. Mm -hmm. hmm. One of, one of the things that I'm struck by in listening to you, Gavin, is um, it's allowing me to reflect back on, um, I, I was actually born dead, <laughs> and uh, my mother was pronounced dead, and uh, I think that the closeness that we can get sometimes to death even though it's um, it's something the mind and body kind of naturally, of course, sort of shrivels from, I think. 
that, that it, it has such a capacity to awaken us. Like the, the, the screen falling just then, it was just like, you know, that feeling that you never know it's going to happen is really the basis of the Buddha's teaching. And the, just that, that shared, the shared vulnerability that we all have, that's what dukkha, the translation of dukkha is suffering, but it's so, to me it's just like, uh, it doesn't say it. Like it doesn't say what suffering really is. In, in this context of suffering is that we live in a world of change and that it's so profound and we see the limitation of, yes, we can make great efforts. Like it took tremendous effort for me to, you know, make somebody respond to the situation. It took like this fierce, it wasn't like I, I was uh, at all accepting that Gavin was going to die in that room. I would have accepted it if I'd made my best effort or and others did, but I really just put out tremendous effort and I think that's what can be confusing about the teaching and that it's not about just accepting in that you just let let yourself again become a doormat. It's really that balance of really putting out your best effort and accepting that you can't control the result of those efforts. Mm. And I think that that's hard. You know, it would be so much easier if it, if if mindfulness meant okay, whatever, you know, and, and that meant you didn't do anything, that would be easier. Or if mindfulness meant you just put out your best effort and you're just going to always get the results of what you put out, that would be great, right? But this is this paradox where, where, where um, every moment requires a listening and a not knowing because every moment is different. And to really accept that is uh, like so profound. And I found in my life that like when my mother died when I was 13 again, it was like um, when I touched her body and it was cold, it was just like, I can't tell you, it was just like electric shock treatment. You know, it was just like, whoa. You know, and but I also noticed that each of my um, people in the family had a completely different response to that situation. You know, so that's interesting too, right? It's like that there can be these powerful experiences in life. And uh, for me, it turned me, I was already really spiritually oriented, like by five, I was really watching my breath. And I just like, that was what I came in this planet with. It was just this sort of, um, outer circumstance and inner circumstance that was responding by uh, taking a lot of time in nature. You know, nature, really nature saved me and uh, being with the breath. So um, I think that to be able to face dukkha, that just that, just that, that ability to really come to terms with yeah, we're that vulnerable. That's the thing that we attack in ourselves and others the most. You know, from day one, my father was at attacked me for being vulnerable, and yet I wouldn't give up. You know, it's just like because I could see that that was the gift of my life. You know, is just to be able to really get it. 
you know, and you, you can see how um, I think particularly now in this um, at the planet at this time, it's like we we really if you're paying attention, you really get how poignant and vulnerable it really is. It's like um, people did go to the moon <laughs> and look back and saw, you know, like that, that ability for the, us to have pictures internally um, of the earth and that we see ourselves. I think, you know, those that I know that were born after that, the people that I've gotten closer to, you know, in these projects of teaching young people, it's like I really see a difference in the people that were born after that. Like, it's like they're much more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Their systems are much more open and sensitive. It's like it's like a karma that we're living at a time that before that, it's like it was, I think it was so easy to fall into countries or races or tribalisms, not, not, I mean, as a way to separate ourselves from each other, rather than to uh, enjoy diversity, you know, just to really celebrate diversity, uh, which is, again, the paradox that we're born into as humans. So, um, Gavin had, had mentioned that maybe I could talk about menopause as a as a kind of you know thing about the body and I don't know if that you're interested some of you might be interested in that but I could offer in terms of what I'm saying that I think that any time of profound change um, requires such a shift in how we see ourselves so it's like each shift in life is is like a spiritual identity crisis and we're not taught that. Like at five, we have a spiritual identity crisis. At 13, at puberty, we have another one. You know, when we get involved in serious relationships, that's another one. It's like children. Um, you know, just like you can look at your life and see when there have been these really important shifts. And it often includes the body. You know, and to me, this shift, I think men go through menopause, so sorry, if I speak about it, I include men. It's just not as a, it's not as clear that bleeding stops, but I certainly feel like the men I know are going through a big change in hormones. And um, I mean, it's, it's such a huge, vast topic, it's hard to know where to begin, but I think the most important one is really how easily worthlessness, I think worthlessness in terms of becoming an elder in our culture, uh, the, the appearance of worthlessness and the belief in it is such a tragedy. And I think culturally, I mean, I know that I am fierce. This is another thing I'm fierce about. I'm fierce about, even though I wasn't eldered, I really, I really want to, um, attempt to do this well, you know, it's like how are we going to elder the next generation and how, how are they going to learn if we don't try to do it and I feel like I'm willing to make as many mistakes as I can, you know, it's, it's like really intense because 
it's so um, tragic that, I mean, I see people having facelifts and, and plastic surgery in their 30s and 40s. And it's like, I'm just like, it's staggering, you know. It's just like, um, as much as I don't like all these wrinkles <laughs> coming in, you know. Because, and why don't I like them? I don't like them because what is it? It's a fear of not being loved, yeah. And how absurd that it's getting in our culture that, uh, or on the planet that, um, again, that that we're that vulnerable, you know, that we're that out of balance, that we're willing to hurt ourselves like that. I mean, not that that's a person's choice. I'm not saying that that I can understand it, but it's like I'm kind of, if you take the bigger picture, that's what I mean. People have individual choices around this, but I think that what I'm I'm trying to say is that becoming an elder is a birth, and it's a much longer birth than a nine-month um, incubation in the womb. It's like I'm seeing that it's more like probably a 10 to 15-year process. And we don't like to think about things like that. It's like we don't like to think that it will take 10 or 15 years to become an elder and um, how wonderful. You know, that, that I think the archetype is really becoming the queen, finally to become the queen and the king, and that the culture honors, is meant to honor that. You know, it's like in most indigenous, same, more sane cultures, the elders are, are like considered the most blessed. So of course it's fearful. I mean, I already see how um, you age into invisibility in our culture. You know, so all the all the ways in which we can um, interpret that invisibility as uh, self-hatred um, and worthlessness, and you know, the the good news in this to me is that that culturally it's so off balance that I see that already it's forcing me to again kind of get fierce and say no, you know, no. You know, it's like um, my awareness is stronger than this. And, and, and it's like I think that we really are meant to go, like the birth process being born is intense. And anybody who gives birth or parents knows that it takes a tremendous amount of care and preciousness to really grow a child <laughs> and a being. And then it takes great care and preciousness to grow an elder. You know, and, and because we don't understand this, um, a lot of people just disappear. They do get annihilated by old age. Um, But we don't have to. I think I think that if you take the body as me or I or mine, <laughs> it's gonna start getting pretty rough <laughs> at some point, you know. Um, yeah. So, in this like season, this landscape of menopause, and I mean, you know, perhaps we guys do go through it in our own particular way, I think so, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I have a number of friends who are, who are in this cycle, in this process, and 
the thing that strikes me is that the body is behaving differently. It's almost, you know, it's manifesting, you know, the elements in new ways. Mm-hmm. And it's also that on the one hand, and along with that, it's also calling for responses and decisions, mm-hmm. which are really concrete, specific decisions. Do I do this? Do I don't do that? Yeah. Yeah. The ramifications of doing it, there's this huge body of, you, you know, don't do this, do do that, the dangers of that. It's like, how, how is it that you, mm. that you swim these waters with right. fierceness and... Right. Well, you know, I could talk personally. I mean, I think that, um, you know, there's different types of people. And I think that, you know, they say, the Western doctors will say 50% of the people kind of go through. It's sort of like the spiritual journey we talked about yesterday. Fast, easy, (laughs) fast, bad, hard, Uh, slow, easy, slow, hard. I'm definitely slow, hard on this one. You know, so I'm on sort of, I'm on the extreme of intensity of symptoms, you know, so in that in that way I can speak from intensity of symptoms. So if you're sort of the type that's sort of easing through menopause, you know. It's like sympathetic I know, I know. I love the women who say, you know, yeah, I didn't even notice it, you know. <laughs> I just like I just wow, you know. But but you, I think that even if you don't notice it, maybe you don't notice it at 55, 60. But something's going to hit by 70, 75, 80. I mean, you cannot avoid, you cannot avoid that. Um, ultimately, it's hopeless. <laughs> the body will eventually die. I mean, it, you know, it's gonna, you know, it's gonna do it. So, I think it's just, I think menopause is a time to really, you have a chance to live the life that one hasn't lived. And one has the chance to um, really develop a very powerful, deeper spiritual understanding. You know, I think it's a real call to a much deeper wisdom and compassion. And um, say, for example, I mean, uh, for me that I've had such serious uh, migraines with it that that dealing with the sleeping, no sleep or very little sleep or the hot flashes or um, divorce, <laughs> you know, and then parents dying and, you know, I mean, responsibility for children. I think that this age of that you go through it, I think of it as being a donkey because you're still responsible for the elders and you're still responsible for the children. And all I wish is that somebody had mentioned this. <laughs> like, who left this out? You know, like if somebody had just said, you know, this age is kind of, you know, a lot to balance, you know. <laughs> That would have been a little bit of a glimmer of, you know, help, you know. Hello. <laughs> you know, so just the just the weight, you know, the weight of it is so intense. Um, and if and if then if you're trying to do it consciously, mm-hmm. you know, I think that that's really it. So um, certainly for myself, um, I like just hot flashes. It's like initially it would be like. You know, you lay in bed and it's like, wow, 
Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you know. <laughs> really, you just throw the covers off and you're just kind of like, wow, what was that? You know? <laughs> that must be, and then you go, oh, that must be a hot flag. <laughs> you know, and it's just like, it's amazing. But what, how I relate to hot flashes is um, like rapture, you know, in meditation. If, if you shift your attitude that it's like this incredible energy coming through your system, that's an example that mm. I can give. That yeah, I know. loved it. The other morning we were yeah. making fruit salad together and you said, I'm in rapture. <laughs> <laughs> so hot. <laughs> so the cultural way to say hot, you know, it's hot, you're hot, you know. It's great, you know. But mm. that, I mean, that, that, that's relatively to me. The sleeplessness, for example, and the, oh, that n no recall. <laughs> that one. That one. <laughs> you know, I think I'm perfecting perfecting no recall. You know? <laughs> I mean, I think that it. What I see again is I'm not through this process, obviously, but I think that I really feel like I've already started to see. Okay, no recall. You know, that really significant thing that the doctor said. I don't remember it. You know. <laughs> But it's sort of like when I'm asked something, I can kind of see, oh, what's really important here? Mm. You know, and it cuts through because what was important in that was that the doctor was so touched by Gavin, you know, and he was touched by us. And it was like he, that was, mm. that's what mm. he was trying to say, you know. And I mm. think that that's what I find over and over is that if I trust in that moment that I'm, the, the the memory the memory horses are falling into the abyss. You know they, they just can't get that memory. And, you know wherever it is, and you know that little chip or whatever. Um, <laughs> if I don't judge it, so much of this is like whether it's a hot flash or a migraine or you know it's like is if you don't judge it and you surrender, it's like it's usually a great teaching. Yeah, I remember when you were saying, Michelle was saying she was teaching with another teacher who, uh, and they were doing a retreat and she hadn't slept for one night. And right. Michelle and I were like, one night? <laughs> yeah, I was trying so hard to be compassionate because it's, it's been like five years, right? And I'm sort of looking at her like, one night, you know. <laughs> I know, but it was really her edge, you know, yeah. and I had to kind of remember, okay, you know, oh, <laughs> what's the problem? <laughs> <laughs> and even people that are in the early stages of, you know, menopause, I mean, the perimenopausal thing, this is that person, actually. I mean, she's like at the beginning, and you kind of want to, you don't want to say, well. Fasten your seatbelt. But it's true. It's like, you know, then your skin and your hair, and you know, I mean, it's just like, it's amazing. It's really amazing. It's truly amazing. Um, and it's very helpful, again, I think, to see that it's a, it is a death, but it's also a birth, mm. and it, that's what culturally we don't do. It's like there's um, you look at you know I mean look at what's happening. It's like there's this admiration now of prepubescence. Like it's not you know you you look at the bodies that are being put out as the way you should be, and you know it's just that adulation of 
prepubescent, you know, what is that? And then what does it do for people that are becoming elders that have this whole tradition of wisdom to pass on? Um, and then, you know, it's, it's actually no surprise the way the world is, you know. At least it's less surprising. And I, you know, you you know, you just kind of. I just sort of feel like growing old cuts through just over and over again. If you get over that initial, oh no, <laughs> what am I going to do about blah blah blah? It's like I saw my dad. I mean, being in the hospital with Gavin was just this really. Not only was it did it bring us so much more close, you know, it's like it was just completely a shift in our relationship um, in such a blessed way. But it, I, it was interesting because for me it was also like boot camp for like hospitals. And if I hadn't been through that experience with Gavin, because after that having my sister, but then my dad, my dad is so terrified of any dependence. I mean, it's like I was dreading dreading, <laughs> totally dreading, you know, him getting to the point where he would need help. And it, he did everything I thought, you know, it was just like, I mean, it was truly in character. <laughs> he just couldn't make the transition. You know, it's just like he, he, and all his rage, like growing up with his violence and his rage, you know, and, um, he was this great fighter pilot in World War II, a great town hero. It's like, it was like in private, in home, the, he brought the war home. But in, in the exterior, he was this great hero. And um, he believed in his identity as the hero. But inside, it's like, as I spent the last months with him, it was really good for me to see that he was terrified. You know, I never saw that vulnerability. I only saw the rage. And um, but it, he didn't know. I mean, he didn't switch to an understanding of fear. He just stayed enraged. Um, you know, and there there are many stories, but um, maybe the most hilarious one. <laughs> I mean, there's so many. But even at Mass General. I had to get him out of the local hospital he was in, which he'll, he'll never forgive me for because he wanted to die in Framingham, you know. And he wasn't getting any good care. And he actually got pneumonia. And because I had seen Gavin with pneumonia, I could see he had pneumonia. And the doctors didn't even diagnose it. So I, I finally got him out of where he was. They had no um, diagnosis of, you could see his muscles in his bones. His skin had just gone up. It was horrendous, the pain he was in, you know. And um, he couldn't move. But he was still the most heavy, you know, like South Boston, really tough guys, you know, like those really obnoxious guys. Um, the doctors that were the most big, obnoxious South Boston kind of guys at Mass General were terrified of my father. <laughs> Nurses were terrified of my father. There was one doctor that came out, and I, I had to go. They had to, they made me go out of the room a lot, you know. And <laughs> one guy came out, and he's just like slamming the door open, and he's like. I can't believe you grew up with that guy. <laughs> like, <laughs> so moving fast forwarding this, this is so funny. Like um, we had the family had to decide to pull the plug, right? Which was you know wrong family. And then um, my sister used to bring in two big bottles of wine and get smashed 
every night. You know, like that's typical too. Like, I mean, this, I mean, it was incredible. She, the, the capacity of my sister is just extraordinary. You know, and she knocked down two of these like within half an hour. You know, so she was smashed, and it was like the rest of the kids and the kids, the kids that I raised were there. And, um, she made this three-hour exit scene, like, you know, just, she couldn't ever handle being with my dad when he was dying, but she was the favorite, and they did this whole nutty thing for three hours. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable, and then she left, and then my sweet, sweet oldest niece, I mean, she's just so sweet, and she's a fundamentalist Christian, and uh, she just loved her grandpa so much, and uh, she went to the bedside. And, you know, just get it. It's like finally there was some peace in the room. He's about to die. And she holds his hand. And she's just really sweet, right? And she said, it's okay, Grandpa. Um, just go toward the light. And, <laughs> and so um, she's just trying to soothe him and, you know, just go toward the light. Because that, that three-hour scene actually was really hard on him and it took it out of him. You know, so there was that feeling that, you know, of course you wanted to sort of do something for him. And he was terrified of death, terrified. You know, and he never talked about it. He couldn't talk about it. So she's like, don't worry, Grandpa, God will take care of you. <laughs> Just go toward the light. And she kept repeating, go toward the light. And I could feel this energy building in my dad, you know, like, and I'm like, uh-oh, you know, and I just, I didn't interfere, which I sort of regret, you know, like, and it was just building, you know, and building. It was just sort of like, <laughs> kind of waiting for a tornado to hit, you know, mm -hmm. you know, you can just feel it, feel it, and all of a sudden, he just exploded, <laughs> it was just like, I don't want to go toward the goddamn light! <laughs> Okay, you know, and everybody was crying. And I was like, okay, go get some grilled cheese, you know. French fries, you know. Just get as much fat and sugar as you can. Just, you know, go. And they all went down. <laughs> they all went down to the cafeteria, you know, just like, eat up, but, you know. <laughs> Chips, you know, brownies, you know. Whoa, that was heavy duty. <laughs> seen anything like this. You know, I, like, I kind of took a bunch of breaths, like, you know. So then I went up to my dad, you know, because he's about to die, you know. So it's like, okay, you know, it's like, so I, I kind of slowly reached for his hand, and it was just really gentle, really gradual. And he'd blown up at me consistently for two months, and I was so sick of it, you know. And I was sort of resigned, you know, okay, and I held his hand, and I said, but he, he couldn't talk by this point. Like, he was so bad. He was about to die. And it was like, great. You know, there was this other part of me that was going, finally. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's like, I can talk to this guy, and he can't, like, he can't yell, you know, or beat me up, you know. So I was like, good, okay. And I waited, and I said, well, Dad, if you've been wondering what I've been doing all these years, you know, I can really, like, be with you with this. 
if you'd like, you know. But he couldn't even say yes or no. It was great. <laughs> and it was just like I was just with him, with him, with him. And I said, you know, you don't have to go toward the light. You know, it's like, and, and, and of course, in actual fact, I don't think he's heading toward the light. <laughs> it wasn't my biggest worry this lifetime that my father was going to go toward the light, right? You know? Of <laughs> all the things that I've been worried about, it isn't that, you know? So I, <laughs> so, but I, again, I mean, I just really tried to tune into what did he really need? And, you know, this is really important for us when we're with people that are getting old. And ourselves, it's like, what did he need? Well, my father was really afraid of stillness. And he was really afraid of the light. You know, and, and it's like, uh, so I just tried to shift to, well, what did he need? And, I sa- and so I said, you know, I think whatever happens, because I really do believe this, just keep going. You know, if it gets really dark, if it gets really hard, don't think of it as permanent, you know, just keep, just keep moving through it, mm. moving through it. Like, and, and so I said, you might hit some light, you might hit some dark, but, you know, it's like, just keep going, and I'll stay with you as long as I can, you know, and everything in him started to relax a bit, you know. Mm. It was just like, really? Um, and, you know, and, you know, at the very end, he squeezed my hand. And that's all I ever received from my dad. And it was really hard to receive it. It's like I could feel it, but it, you know, it's like it's taking me a lot of time to receive that. You know, so so my sister went totally the opposite. She went with real clarity. She was afraid and then got through it. And um, of course, we don't want to die. You know, and ending with her was just the opposite. It was like she had made peace with it, her life. We had a difficult relationship through just a lot of trauma. And we healed it. And we went through and um, it was just like the opposite experience. Mm. And I think that she went first and then my dad went (laughs) within a year. And I have to say that I had this expectation that that it was going to be similar. I mean, I, you know, I don't know why, but maybe I was hoping, but um, one of the things I learned even in that was just how different, I mean, so how utterly different they, they passed through this life, you know, and um, so I think menopause, like I think that this time period is really the time to, um, look deeply because if you don't when you get up to if you make it to 70 80 90 I think it's just like impossible to um, really develop that strength you know I mean you can open and I think that's really important but I I think and I saw that my sister did it but she just really regretted waiting so long Mm. you know she said that Mm. You know, she, she did, but it was like um, she was living her life in a way that was really self-defeating in many ways. And um, the cancer came, and she really wanted to change, but um, she regretted not having made the changes. And watching Gavin come through that experience was just 
so inspiring. I mean, I have to say, Gavin, that um, your dedication to living fully is so inspiring. You know? hmm. Maybe spend a few quiet moments together, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.